What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr. Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. All right, Mark, uh, who have we got this week? Uh, this week we're interviewing Palestinian refugee and advocate Dr. Olfat Mahmoud, uh, who's written a book, Tears for Tashiha. This book is about the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, or the Israeli War of Independence, as it's also known, which triggered about 700,000 Palestinian refugees being forced to flee their homes in what later became Israel. No state was ever created for the Palestinians. So this story starts with Olfat telling the story of her grandmother and grandfather fleeing from their hometown to Shiha. And essentially the book is about uh, Olfat's life mission to return to that town of Tashiha. Yeah, so it, it's about her experiences within uh, refugee camps within Lebanon and, and her advocacy around Palestinians' right to return. Okay, so... Um I don't think we'll waste any time on this one. Let's let's get straight into the interview. So, welcome, Alfred. I read your book, Tears for the Shiha. The story of the flight from Tashiha in 1948 seems to be a story about grief and loss, not only a family's personal story, but uh, the loss of the Palestinians of their country. And it's also the story of three generations of women, it seemed to me. Can you tell me about your grandmother, Alia, and, and what her story was? My grandmother, Alia, she was born in Palestine, and she married and she had her family in Palestine. In 1948, when the war started, my grandmother heard about the different massacres that took place in Palestine and the massive killing, and many people were wounded. So when her village, Tarshiha, was bombed, she was so scared, and like other mothers from Tarshiha, they decided to leave because of the war. So they were forced at gunpoint to leave their village. And she never thought she would be a refugee. She thought she is leaving for a couple of weeks, and then she will be able to return back. And she ended up a refugee, and she lived in Lebanon all her life after that, until 2004 when she passed away, and she was 94 years old. I remember reading that. I suppose it was quite affecting that your grandmother lost two children in that flight. They, like, you know, they moved from one village to another, and they walked from Palestine to Lebanon, to the south of Lebanon. Through this really miserable journey, two of her children had measles, and they died because of that. She couldn't find, you know, medical uh, attention. She couldn't uh, help her children, so both of them died. Reading about the history, which I learned about from your book, the British set up Palestine as a protectorate in, in a similar way that they did to they did when they colonised Australia. It was settler colonisation and they set yes. up protectorates for the Aboriginal people and they supported Jewish uh, colonisers. I wondered what your feelings about the British were now and also about the psychology of exile and uh, being forced into a place like Lebanon where you're not made to feel welcome. 
my feeling towards the bread is a good question, actually. Of course, at that time, in 19th, they started from 1917. I always differentiate between government's policies and opinions and politics and between people. Also now among the parliament, the British parliament, there are many who are Palestinian friends. So I hope they will work hard to help us to return back to Palestine. I think they feel they have the, some, this is what I, uh, why I, what I feel, that they feel guilty. And I hope they will be able to help us to return back to Palestine. I just was going to ask whether you felt that the guilt was a, a useful or powerful motivating factor, that it was useful for uh, change. Yes. Do you mean the change that uh, is happening now? Yes, yes. Yeah, because now with the, due to technology, people get more information. And I think the change is happening because people now they see what's happening in Palestine and they, uh, they start to question and this will make the change. I know you talked about your mother uh, as a teenager growing up in the camp, in the Burj Barajna camp. What were her experiences as a young woman in these camps? Because that's most of her life, isn't it? The, that's what she knew. Yeah. Actually, my mother was doing very well at school. And I come from Tarshiha village, where in Tarshiha they, uh, they used to teach boys and girls. Yes. And uh, because due to the exile, and my mother was not settled in one place for many months, then they ended up in a refugee camp. She missed the opportunity to continue her education, unfortunately. This is why my mother wanted us to be very well educated. But I remember she was able to help us when we were little, like, you know, supervising us while we were studying, always help us with our homework. And she wanted us to be well-educated. And this is why, in spite I'm a refugee and I lived in a refugee camp, I was able to become, uh, you know, an academic and gain a, a PhD in psychology. And you initially trained as a nurse. I know that your your relationship with your father was very important, that you had a, you were very close with your father and that you loved him a great deal and that he called you old fat. Yeah. Uh, Actually, I wanted to be a doctor first. Yes. And my father promised me he will send me uh, to study and be a doctor. But when I finished my high school, we couldn't afford it. It was impossible. So this is why I went to nursing and I enjoyed it. And then I was able, after I had worked for many years in nursing, uh, I was able to save some money and go back to university. And actually the idea came after I did the course here in Australia in 1984-85, I was on a scholarship from Union Aid Abroad, AFIDA, uh, when they brought some Palestinian nurses to Australia. And I was one of them, and I did this course in community nursing. I liked working within the community. And, of course, I had enough from war because all my experience during nursing was war in war areas. So I had enough and I decided to go back to university and study sociology and psychology. I did it for four years, then waited until I saved more money and then went to do my master's degree, then women's diploma, women's studies diploma, and then I did my PhD in 2016. This is all because 
I was brought up to focus on education. And my parents used always to tell me, as a refugee, you lose your dignity. But when you are well-educated, you will gain your dignity again. And your name means something as well. Olfat, yeah. Yes. Yeah, my father uh, called me Olfat. Olfat means love and care. And I felt, you know, I should fulfill my name. So I should always work to care about others and to be the voice of my people outside the refugee camps. Um, I wanted to talk to you about some of the political or the political history and the environment. So I was going to ask you about who the Palestinian Liberation Organization is or were um, and what their purpose was. Uh, The PLO was. Yes, the PLO. Who were they and um, what is their purpose? Who they were. Different political Palestinian, yeah, uh, different political uh, Palestinian parties, they came all together and they formed PLO. And who they are, um, they were from the, like, uh, Palestinians and many Lebanese joined as well and other Arabs. They joined PLO. They aim, it's, you know, from its name. PLO, to liberate Palestine. Yes. And also the Palestinians in Lebanon, because from the beginning they were not welcomed and they were treated badly. So the Palestinian people, they thought it's like, you know, they came to save our lives. They came to make our lives easier. And I know in Europe, PLO is very well known with their military body. But as, as a fact, they have military body, yes, but they have also medical departments. They have educational departments. And many, many students, they get scholarship from BLO, and they went and they studied the outside Lebanon uh, on scholarships. So they have also hospitals. They have welfare and relief department for people who are not working or they have uh, financial problems. They would get support from them. And plus their political uh, department and their military department. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Dr. Olfat Mahmoud. I wanted to talk to you about the UN Security Council resolutions um, of 242 and 338 calling for the return of Palestinians to their country. 194, yeah, Resolution 194 as well, yeah. And and the ceasefire, uh, the, the multiple ceasefires have been called upon and the observation that Israel has broken these international laws time and time again and yet there seem to be no ramifications. What is the point of these resolutions and laws, and international law, if there is no consequence? Because Israel never signed any of these uh, resolutions. And the international community, they keep silent. Look, just I will remind you, about two, three weeks ago, Israel, they they, uh, passed on this new law. Israel is only for Jewish people. Yes. Uh, What is the response of the international community? Nothing really much. Well, there's silence, isn't there, a lot of the time? Yeah, there is silence, exactly. Or, or the, exactly. the media don't seem to report it. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, something is wrong, actually, because something like that is very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. What to do with the uh, Muslims and the Christians who are there? Still in, uh, uh, in what's called Israel, there are many Muslims and Christians. So by this law, what they will do with them? What do you think will happen? Actually, we were worried about transfer. 
like especially after this law and the international community kept silent so we were worried about transferring people from from there to neighborhood countries as well so the world has to do something about that how is it that the international community can take responsibility now by putting pressure on israel to allow the Palestinians to return back because there is a place for us to return back and to stop all of what all these new settlements and what is happening so they they can put pressure on them and uh, i like in 1947 the uh, international community they divided Palestine into two states yes and after that war started so they are responsible to I'm a refugee not because I choose to be a refugee. I'm a refugee because a forced refugee. I was yes. forced to be a refugee. I was born in Lebanon as a refugee. So why I should take all the consequences of being a refugee? Why I should be humiliated? Why I should be looked at as mm, a refugee full stop, not as a human being? Do you feel humiliated? Yes, of course. Yes. Of course, I do feel that wherever I go, look, we as uh, Palestinian refugees, we are stateless as well. Yeah? So that means we don't carry passports like everyone. What we carry is UN papers, traveling document papers. And due to my work, because of my work, I travel. Otherwise, this paper is nothing. Like, it doesn't help us at all. And we don't have the right of really movement. So even I have visa, even I have, uh, you know, support letters, what I'm doing, still at the airport, I'm treated as a refugee and really, uh, I like each time I travel, I have a story to tell. This is what I always say. You asked me the first question about the psychology of uh, people on exile or it's a very painful experience. You are traumatized. You suffer in every second in your life because you are a refugee. So what do you expect from refugees? They really feel they exist, but they are not recognized. And we have a question. I asked, the, I asked my parents and my children asked me the same question. Mom, what does it mean to be Palestinians? And where is Palestine? Why we are in Lebanon? I suppose that's what I was interested in the book. I mean, because of the things that you've been through and the things that you've seen, um, horrific things, things from war zones, your strength seemed to come through all the time. And I wondered how you managed to not lose yourself to the trauma and to the horror. First of all, I have a great family and different support. And... We as Palestinians, refugees, we have a strong, this strong relationship in between people, and this gives you really strength. Also friends, friends, local friends, and like, like for example, I, I always uh, talk about my uh, Australian, I call her sister, Dr. Helen McHugh. Yes. Um, whenever, I met her in 1982, after Sabra and Shatila massacre, and we worked together. And I've known her since that time. I won't tell you, we have this spiritual even link. Well, whatever happening, I get surprised she calls me. Yes. Uh, and she said, I'm worried about you, what's happening? Or 
I, if I, if I feel down, I call her and we have long chat. This is a very good uh, way to gain, you know, your strength. And uh, this is why I'm not really, I'm traumatized. I'm not saying I'm not, but yes. I'm like overcome this, this situation. It seems as though you found meaning in that, mm. that there's yes. a meaning to being a Palestinian and to fight for return. Yeah. And I'll tell you, um, because we suffer a lot in our life, we don't want anyone to suffer like us. And this is why, believe me, uh, my people, when they watch on the TV, like there is war here or there now in Syria, for example, even people they don't know, not Arabs, like when there was war in Kosovo. And I've, I've seen this many times. Women will speak with the ladies who are leaving their villages. And they will, they were, like women were in tears. And they will tell them, don't leave, you will become refugees. So we feel with people who have really similar situation. And we don't want anyone to suffer the way we are suffering. I mean, the point that you made earlier in terms of dividing people from governments and, and people from politics, yeah. uh, there was a point in the book where you had to care for wounded soldiers from... Yes, from Christian Zahrar, yes. Christian, yeah. Christian militia who'd murdered your countrymen. Yeah. That seemed to be incredibly difficult to me. Actually, it's difficult, yes, but they are human beings at the same time. And also, I always say... They don't have enough information. They were taught in a wrong way. Beirut was divided uh, in 1970s. And these, these uh, soldiers, when they came to the hospital, they were very young. So I said, they don't know us. They don't, this is what, what parents told them or people around them. So when I nursed them, I said, it's not their fault. And let me show them the other side of the story. And they were all surprised. And they, they really, this is exactly what I analyzed. Like, they told me they want to see a Palestinian. And I said, I am Palestinian. He said, no, 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 I want to see real Palestinian, not someone working with Palestinians. I said, come on, I am Palestinian. What's, and the doctor who saw you now is Palestinian. They were surprised because they were told that Palestinians are not civilized. They are refugees with really, you know, filthy, they don't know how to speak, imagine. So the problem is lack of information, and this is the way they were taught. So this is why I felt like, I don't like to say enemy, really, because, like, I don't, I don't like this word. And I learned to love, not to hate. So this is why I was at ease, and I said I should... Prove to them that we are human beings like them. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Dr. Olfat Mahmoud. Are you okay to talk about what occurred at Sabra and Shatila? Okay. Because I know that um, you talked about, I mean, this was very traumatic and that it uh, resulted in nightmares. It is. Mm. I know that this occurred after the assassination of Jemayel, who whose Christian Lebanese forces uh, militia attacked the camps uh, following his assassination because they had wrongly assumed that it was Palestinians responsible for his death. Yeah, and he was the president of Lebanon as well at that time. 
Can you tell me about the political context of him and the Christian Lebanese forces? They never uh, wanted the Palestinians in Lebanon. This is the first thing. And when he was assassinated, they they assumed Palestinians killed him. I don't know why or, or how. But it's a blend, actually. It's a blend with the Israeli as well, because uh, Ariel Sharon was, you know, knowing about this uh, massacre, and he was supervising it as well. Yeah, it happened after BLO, as I mentioned earlier, left Lebanon. So no PLO, no soldiers, no Palestinian army, no no one in the camps. And out of a sudden, the uh, the Israeli they came with the helicopters, and they brought soldiers around Shatila camp. Uh, I wasn't working in the hospital near Shatila camp, and we saw that all these Israeli soldiers around uh, Shatila camp. And they used, you know, the Kuwaiti em- uh, embassy. It's very close to Shatila camp. They used the Kuwaiti embassy as their base because uh, no one was there. No Kuwaitis were there. They all left because of war. And that first they start, you know, fighting, like uh, bombing and uh, uh, with the Lebanese because we could see the Lebanese tanks as well. People, uh, they felt like we are civilians, why they are doing that? So people want to talk to them, to talk to the Israelis who are at the Kuwaiti embassy and to talk to the uh, Israelis who are on the other side of the camp. When they went there, the Israelis told them, sorry, we can't do anything for you. These are the Lebanese, uh, Lebanese people are doing this and we are not responsible. But... At night, they made night daytime. They were throwing all these light bombs, uh, the Israelis, and they were helping them. Maybe they haven't uh, done it by their hands, but they were facilitating for it, and they were supervising it. So imagine, in less than 24 hours, thousands of people were killed. And how we get to know, as I remember, we were run out of food in the hospital because the hospital was bombed and uh, the kitchen was bombed, so we used to buy food day by day. We didn't have storage. So I went with a friend of mine to buy from Shatila camp some food. When we saw these two young boys, they were running and screaming and saying they saw someone who entered the camp and they are killing. We thought they are just, you know, young boys and they are frightened. So I took them with me to the hospital after we bought a few things. And they were insisting on, they saw people entering the camp and killing people. We didn't believe them. We thought they are frightened. That's it. It was over expectation. In the evening, we, a woman who was, you know, in the hospital, we, have, we had a shelter. Yes. So women and the children, some women and children came and stayed in the shelter. That woman went to her house to bring food to the rest of the family. She came screaming, full of blood, and she said she found her husband and two children, uh, the adult children, are dead, and they were killed. So we started to question, what is that? After one hour, another boy, he was wounded, and he was able to come very close to the camp, 
asking for help. When we asked him, he said people came into our house and they were shooting and using the knife and they killed my father and they killed my brother. And I was wounded, but I pretended I am dead. Then we realized there is something. But we couldn't leave because Israel was, you know, sieged the area. Put the area in siege, so we couldn't, we couldn't uh, leave, and we stayed. At dawn, early morning, we started to hear their, the people's voices screaming, and they became very close to the hospital. But no way to go. And after that, a woman, Lebanese woman, came to the hospital, and she said, please leave the hospital. They are asking about you. We said who they are. She said, I don't know. But they, you know, they speak Arabic and they speak Lebanese, but they have with them Israeli, she said, because some of them, they speak broken Arabic. And they were asking about the hospital and uh, who is in the hospital and all these questions. We couldn't leave, and we were in Dalima, what to do. Uh, I was lucky in the ground floor with some doctors and nurses. Uh, when out of a sudden, Israel withdrew towards the airport. And that means we can now leave. And this is why Israel withdrew, to let them enter the hospital. So they, no one will blame them. No one will say, how did you allow these people to enter the hospital? So they moved away. And we had only less than half an hour to, to, to leave the hospital. So what we did, the first thing we did, we went to the shelter where we had hundreds of people. We told them, please leave, but don't go to any camp, because we didn't know what's happening in other camps. Just leave the, the hospital. And while we were discussing what to do with the patients, what to do with ourselves, they attacked the hospital. So I was on the ground floor. I was able to jump from the window and go outside. But some doctors and nurses were underground or were on the third floor or they couldn't make it and they were killed. It, no one believed me. This is what really still hit, hurts me. When I left the hospital, I went straight to some people who I know and my uncle is a journalist. When I talk, or I have nightmare or I'm afraid, no one believed me. Few meters Imagine it or not, few meters from the from Shatila camp, where the massive killing and the blood and people were shopping, buying vegetables. I still remember. I can recall the scene again. They were, you know, in the Middle East, they sell vegetables and on trolleys. Yes. They were selling. I could see the uh, cucumber trolley and the other one oranges, and they were selling, and people were buying as if nothing happening. When I told people, people were shocked, and they wanted to take me to the doctor to give me something to settle down. No one believed me, because it's unbelievable what happened. But after two hours, everyone got to know that there is a massacre, and that many people were killed, and people were frightened. And for a few months after Sabra and Shatila massacre, people couldn't sleep in other areas, in other camps. Burj al-Barazni is 10 minutes away from Shatila camp. People couldn't sleep for months because they were frightened that something again will happen. And I'm really, I don't know what to say, like, you know, thousands of people were killed 
and what what happened after that nothing no one like as i said ariel sharon should have been taken to the international court and all people who helped him and they should have interrogated him and find out which groups in lebanon from lebanon helped him so it's really a very sad memory you're listening to deep trouble Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Dr. Olfat Mahmoud. I understand when I read this that you talked about the hatred and loathing you felt and the despair that you felt towards the world. And it seems, I know you talked about love, but it seems hard to imagine how you overcome that. Sometimes we say, okay, this is the price of being a refugee. This is, you know, uh, people are frightened from us. No one wants us to be in their country. This is why I always say, why when I say the right of return, all people tell me, most of the people, they tell me it's not realistic. Okay, then, give me one realistic solution. No one accepts us. It's like, like being a refugee, people get frightened. Oh, they will, like in Lebanon, for example, people are frightened that we will uh, stay in Lebanon and we will take the nationality and that will disturb, you know, the religious parents in the country. So wherever you go, they look at you as a refugee and they get scared. The word refugee scares the world. It feels like wherever you go, refugees become the scapegoat and you had become the scapegoats of all the pain that people feel, uh, the political pain, the social distress. Yeah, exactly. And we always tell people we don't want the Lebanese nationality. What we want, first of all, we want the right of return. Secondly, until this happens, we want our basic rights. Yani, imagine in Lebanon, um, I was born in Lebanon. We still, until now, we have no right to work in Lebanon in 72 jobs. How you survive if you have no right to work? So the world is putting huge pressure on us. And we believe this the world is doing this deliberately because they want us to accept any solution comes. Now, now recently, uh, the U.S., they decided to cut the budget of UNRWA. That means we will not have schools next year for our children. And what's available in Lebanon is only private sector. So what shall we do? If we don't, if our children don't go to school, it's a catastrophe. The whole generation will be uneducated. They put all, we believe that all this pressure, it's to let us accept any solution will come. And the Palestinians insist on the right of return. But when you have all these difficult lines, when you are threatened that your children will not be educated, when you are threatened that no more money for health, you know, services, then you will say, okay, do anything you want for us. And this is not fair. Are the Palestinian people losing hope? Oh, look, I'll tell you, this is a good question. Do you know what I always say? Our hopes are frozen. No, there, there is still hope. The hope is still there, but they are not active now. It, they are frozen. Because looking at what's happening, what hope we are talking about? 
what happened in the Middle East, what happened like in Syria and Iraq and all over the places, uh, the international uh, uh, politics, uh, the cut of the United Nations uh, agency, which works with Palestinians. It's like we don't belong to UNHCR. We don't have access to UNHCR. The UN body, which is uh, responsible for Palestinians, are UNRWA, United Nations Relief and Work Agency for Palestinians. So what hope we are talking about? But if we lose, if we lose our home, it's a huge problem. It's our real catastrophe then. So we have to keep the hopes, even if they are frozen. There was a story that you told of a Lebanese officer who was trying to play with a Palestinian boy who ran off in terror. Mm. And that yeah. spoke to me about the that people are still individuals. Of course, we should admit that. Yes, because not all are bad. We you still have very nice people with really big hearts. And also there is a story in the book I... Um, after 1982, when the army entered the camps and they were really searching for guns, and my neighbor, my aunt, her neighbor, they uh, group of soldiers went into their homes and they really destroyed the whole house. They were really very aggressive, trying to. While, for example, the soldiers, like two soldiers, came to my aunt's house. And one of them was wearing the cross. My uh, my aunt was frightened. I said, oh my God, you know, he will be now aggressive to, to me. And he was so gentle. He was so nice. He told her, sorry, I should stay a few minutes. Otherwise, the officer will notice I did not search your house. You have a baby, so please don't wake him up. My aunt started to bring things out of uh, the wardrobe so that he, that he can say she said no 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 keep everything in its place so you have you have soldiers who have really big heart and they are really uh, treated you as a human being and you have the opposite I felt the most emotional parts of the book talking about your family with the, with the deaths of your father and your grandfather and in some ways mm. they were very similar in that respect that they both died dreaming of a return to to Shia. Yes. All old people, when they die, they dream. And and actually, as you mentioned, my father was very special to me. And when he died, I felt he spent the last 10 days in Tashiha, in his village. And that made me accept his death. He went there, his soul went there, and no one could stop his soul. No soldiers, no checkpoints, no one. He was there the last 10 days of his life. And you, your grandfather was clutching the grass and soil? Yes. Yeah. And actually, all Palestinians, uh, they have uh, soil from Palestine in their home. So when they die, this is their will. When they die, they ask us to put this soil in their grave. Even me, I have this soil. You you feel like, you know, I'll tell you something else. My father was worried about even his bones. He asked me, if I die and you return back to Tarshiha, what you will do with my body? So people think about 
returning back to their country even after that. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Dr. Olfat Mahmood. Your children are very important to you, but you also feared for their safety over time. Yeah, they are, of course. You know, you want your children to be safe. You want your children to be secure. You want your children, okay, like like I told you, we have no right to work. So nowadays the children, they lose the motivation to go to school. Why I should go to school if in the future I'm not going to work? And they, you know, they picked up this uh, easily. So... It's not easy. It's not easy at all. I had a son who was graduated from university, and for three years he couldn't work. He was, I I won't tell you, he was so miserable, sad. And as a mother, I always talked about this problem, but to live it and to have the experience was horrible for me as well. You've talked about the lack of purpose that can happen to young men in camps and that they can then fall prey to radicalisation. This is it. Like, you know, you can't put someone in the corner and leave them to suffer and really, uh, and really at the end, you will, uh, you want them to behave normally. So I'm not giving, this is not an excuse to anything, but, you know, we have to, we have to look at the reality. You've talked about being secular, your family being secular stuff, but you're, but you come back to saying many times in the book that you feel as though you've survived because God is not ready to take you yet. What yes. does your faith mean to you? What does God mean to you? Oh, God, God means to me the um, like like this superpower. And God means to me God created this world and to live together and to be able to share things together. Uh, This is what um, God means to me. God means that he showed me the right thing to do, but the evil showed me the bad things, and it's my choice either to follow God or to follow the evil. So, but I'm secular in a mean, like, you know, I respect everyone. I... I'm Muslim, my friend is a Christian. I enjoy, you know, when there is a Christmas, why not to celebrate Christmas? Because I see Jesus as a prophet and uh, uh, I believe in him. Um, I like, uh, secular means to separate, to separate my religious from other things and I have to accept others and others should accept me. That is different to what occurs in terms of radicalization and extremism. Because uh, you've said yes. that one of the only reasons you would leave the camps permanently would be if ISIS or a group like that took control. Yeah, yeah. I won't bear them. Yeah, of course. Actually, they won't let me alive. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they see me a uh, bad Muslim. <laughs> so they see you as a threat. Yeah. The Yasser Arafat's 1974 address to the United Nations. In your book, you talked about that as a breakthrough for you. Because he, like, he told the world. He gave them the the olive branch, which is like, you know, you choose either peace or war. Hmm. However, 
when his PLO chairman Arafat uh, in secret brokered a deal which became the Oslo Accords, which you mm. said your people, the Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, have seen as uh, the ultimate betrayal. Yeah, because we were not mentioned. We were not covered in this uh, agreement, in this accord. And we are the majority. We are four millions. We were mentioned only in a small paragraph. And we were forgotten completely. So we were, for this reason, we said this accord will not survive. It was not fair. Do you feel this is a betrayal by the PLO and by, by Arafat at that time? Mm, I think trial is a big word. It's like, you know, they did a mistake. This is what I feel. But it was painful to the refugees who were, yeah, who were suffering. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it sounds like political compromise. I would like to say one thing. As yes. Palestinian, you know, as Palestinian, I feel I should be given the right of return. Yes. And... Why not? We tried the two states. It didn't work. We tried it in 1947 and in 1993 after the Oslo Accord, and it didn't work. So why we keep trying something which didn't work? Why not to have one state, democratic state, with equal rights? We all used to live together. Christians, Muslims, Jewish, we all used to live together. So why not now? That's my message. I know that your son, Chaka, returned yes. to Shiha, and that was at the end yeah. of your book. That seemed like an emotional journey for him. It was for everybody, not just for him, because, you know, he was able to go back because of his Canadian nationality, because we are not allowed even to visit there. And when he went there, we were all happy, not just his relatives, even people from the camp, like... One of us was able to make it, and they were really delighted. And this year he went back again, and he was there on the 15th of May, the day of the Independence Day for the Israeli, but it's our catastrophe day. And my son, from Tarshiha, my village, to the Lebanese border, he walked. He walked because his grandparents walked, but they walked under, you know, uh, gunpoint and there was war. But my son walked this year from Tarshiha to the border of Lebanon just to remind the world what happened in 1948. Thank you, Dr. Alfred Mahmoud. Thank you. Well, Mark, that was an amazing interview. That was uh, an immense subject, a very moving interview, very emotional. How are you feeling about that? It's a very, very uh, difficult book to read, particularly the story uh, of her grandparents being forced to leave Tashiha by Israeli military, her losing children on the journey to, to Lebanon, to the refugee camps, mm. and also the massacres that occurred within refugee camps such as uh, Sabra and Shatila, there's some really horrifying things, and uh, it's incredible to me what she was able to endure. One of the most incredible things is the story around treating some of the Lebanese Christian militia, um, mm. and that she doesn't consider people to be enemies. That's so generous, isn't it? 
It's incredible to be able to go through something mm. like that and to not lose your faith completely in humanity. It's yeah, well, the longest-running conflict of our times, is it not? It's been called the world's most intractable conflict, with ongoing Israeli occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip reaching something like 51 years. It does speak to the idea that might makes right. Mm, um, yeah. And this is recalled in the speech by Israel's first Prime Minister in 1949. Uh, 1948 was the date of the Arab-Israeli War, which became the War of Independence for Israel, but was known as the catastrophe, as uh, Olfat said, for Palestinian Arabs. But recently, I think, in August 29th, 2018, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu gave a speech, and an excerpt of this essentially set Twitter ablaze, where he said, The weak crumble are slaughtered and erased from history, while the strong, for good or for ill, survive. Uh, the strong are respected, and alliances are made with the strong, and in the end, peace is made with the strong. And people had compared this to an address given by Hitler in 1923, mm. where he said, The whole of nature is a mighty struggle between strength and weakness, an eternal victory of the strong over the weak. Probably taken out of context because the speech was meant as a warning to Iran, and it's, it's an idea that is for Israel is using its military might and some of its nuclear program. So, in fact, this speech was given at the renaming of a nuclear research centre in Israel in honour of the late Shimon Peres, who is the architect of Israel's nuclear program. Yep. It's also important to note that Peres campaigned for peace with Palestinians. But unfortunately, the Palestinians, Olfat's family, the people who fled to Shia, um, who have the right to return to their country, have been caught in, I suppose, the great wheel of a regime and history. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's just incredible. So a very deep interview for Deep Trouble. Mark, I want to commend you on that one. Wonderful job. And I want to thank Dr. Olfat Mahmoud for agreeing to be part of Deep Trouble. Her book, Tears for Tashiha, is available now. It's uh, out through Wild Dingo Press. Who do we have next week, Bark? 
Uh, next week we're talking to the Honourable Calvin Thompson, uh, who's an ex-federal politician and who was perhaps best known as the Shadow Attorney General for the Rudd Labor government. He was caught up in the Tony Mockbell scandal uh, because he wrote a letter of commendation character reference for Tony Mockbell, but he won't be defined by that. We're going to be talking about... Australians' population and how it's growing and uh, how he sees it as potentially unsustainable. We're going to be talking about refugee policy. Uh, we're going to be talking about the uh, Rudd-Gillard-Rudd years. And we're also going to be discussing uh, gambling harm, the Alliance for Gambling Reform and the gambling industry in Australia. All right, so that is Deep Trouble next week, Kelvin Thompson. So uh, looking forward to that one already, Mark. More Deep stuff on Deep Trouble next week. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Main FM, Castle, Maine.